Welcome to First Presbyterian Church for our evening worship service. Our call to worship comes from the 46th Psalm, verses 10 through 11. Hear God's word to us. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's worship God together as we stand and sing hymn number 53. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty.
Please be seated. If you'll take your, hymn, your uh, bulletin in hand, you'll find there in our order of worship a corporate confession of sin. We will use these words to corporately confess our sins aloud to God. After that, we'll have a few moments of silence so that we can individually confess our sins, but also just take some time uh, to cast our burdens before the Lord and, and to pray as you see fit. So in our corporate confession of sin, let us pray together. Merciful Lord, we confess that with us there is an abundance of sin, but in you there is fullness of righteousness and abundance of mercy. We are spiritually poor, but you are rich, and in Jesus Christ came to be merciful to the poor. Strengthen our faith and trust in you. We are empty vessels that need to be filled. Fill us. We are weak in faith. Strengthen us. We are cold in love. Warm us and make our hearts fervent for you that our love may go out to one another and to our neighbors. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight, to lift up your praise, to extol your unsearchable greatness. We come to ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend us. And you have befriended us with your love. And so we know that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, uh, that famine, sword, tribulation, suffering, nothing can keep us away from our Savior. More importantly, nothing can keep our Savior away from us. He bridged the chasm between heaven and earth to come and to save us. And so we rest in His assurance tonight. And I pray for those of us in our congregation who are hurting. I know we've had surgeries in the past week we have upcoming surgeries and rehabilitation and the like we have those who are struggling uh, with various forms of grief in their life uh, with loss and with pain in all these things we need to be reminded that in Christ Jesus we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so minister to us tonight bless us tonight smile upon us tonight and give us a fresh sense of the calm of sins forgiven. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our assurance of pardon tonight comes from Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. 
Hear these words of God spoken to you, His people. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to His children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. The Lord Jesus Christ has mercy on sinners. Amen. As we receive the offering now, we will also sing hymn number 402, which is Abide With Me, number 402.
I'd invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. While you're turning there, just point of privilege, I'll say, um, I know the song Abide With Me, Fast Falls the Even Tide is a metaphor for death, but coming from a church that did not have Sunday evening services, we never sang it. It's one of the reasons I'm appreciative of Sunday evening services. You can sing Abide With Me, Fast Falls the Even Tide. True story. 2 Timothy chapter 1, before I read it, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for the rich hymnody that you've given your church, not only in the book of Psalms, but also in the songs of your saints down through the rolling centuries. Singing hymns like this to remind us that even in the face of death, we do not have to fear because you hold the cross before our closing eyes. So shine through the gloom and point us to the skies. I pray that you would do that with this passage from your holy word, uh, that you would open up our minds to understand, our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive what you would say to us tonight by your spirit, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 through 7. Hear God's word. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And this ends the reading of God's word. So for this month, we've been spending our Sunday evenings thinking about the subject of spiritual slumps. Uh, this, I, out, the outline of this series is based on Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And the big idea has been that Christians go through ups and they go through downs. They go through times where we feel very close communion with God and times when we feel that God's face is hidden. And we've been talking about causes for spiritual slumps. The last two weeks, we talked about the past. We talked about guilt and shame over past sins and how that guilt and shame over past sins can cause us not to enjoy God's presence now in the moment. And then last week, we talked about uh, really looking back at past regrets not necessarily guilt and shame over sins, but just general regrets over maybe a relationship that failed or over a career that failed, over an opportunity that we didn't take or an opportunity we did take that ended up not turning out the way that we hoped it would be. And we said that these regrets over the past can stunt us in the present in our relationship with God. So we're going to turn our eyes off the past now this week and look to the future and how the fear of the future can actually hinder our present relationship with God. Blaise Pascal has a quote that when I write, especially graduation cards for graduating high school seniors, I will include this quote very often in those cards. It goes like this. Let each of us examine his thoughts. He will find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, 
It's only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone our end. Thus we never actually live. But hope to live. And since we're always planning on how to be happy, it's inevitable that we should never be so. His point in that. You can spend so much time thinking about what's going to happen in the future that you fail to ever live in the present. You fail to find happiness now. I mean, Jesus put it well himself when he said in Matthew 6, 34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let future anxiety bury its own dead, in other words. He says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. you got enough to worry about right now, right in this moment. But it's easier said than done. So how do we deal, deal with fear of the future? That's the question. Well, two points. I want to talk about the fear of the future and the power of the future. So first, the fear of the future. So Paul is writing to his young disciple Timothy. But this letter is more than just a writing from an old wise mentor to his young uh, apprentice, his young disciple. This is essentially Paul's last will and testament. Paul is on his deathbed as he's writing this. He's under the sentence of death. He's essentially on death row. He knows his days are short. He says it at the end of the book in chapter 4. He'll say that his, he's run the race, he's finished it, there's a prize laid up for me and he's been for him, and he's been poured out like a drink offering. And so when you think about it, that this is like a father giving his very last words to his son, it ratchets up the importance of what we're reading here. And if you look over both epistles to Timothy, Paul has quite a bit to say about the future that could certainly make Timothy worried. So I just want to give you a few examples of how upbeat this letter is. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. It's like, Timothy, don't worry. There's just going to be a bunch of demons out there infesting the church trying to propagate falsehood. Nothing to fear. 2 Timothy 3.1 Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Well, Pollyanna, that's sheer optimism, if you ask me. <laughs> unappeasable is the one that caught my attention. Like Unappeasable, that's our future. You can't bargain with this future. 2 Timothy 4.3 and following, as if Paul hadn't said enough. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Boy, if I'm Timothy, and I'm a preacher, and I know what it's like to be a preacher and, and what the thought life of a preacher is like, I'm saying, like Paul, could you at least give me a little bit of optimism? This does not sound very encouraging. And maybe that's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.23 to Timothy, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine. For the sake of your stomach, 
and your frequent ailments. Like, Timothy, I know you're anxious. I know you're ailing. I know your stomach's a mess. Relax and drink a little wine. That's Paul's advice. Paul knows that Timothy struggles with anxiety. He knows Timothy worries. He knows Timothy is going to be tempted to fear for this bleak future that Paul is telling him is coming. And the spirit who inspired Paul's know that we face the same fears. The church is so worried about the future. We spend half our time just worrying about what the next thing is. Like, what's the next battle? What's the next political agenda? What's the next ideology? What's the next movement? Maybe it's AI. Maybe it's robots. Who knows? I saw that uh, Elon Musk, they're finally experimenting with actually putting chips in people's brains so that they can communicate like a computer with another computer system. Well, we could worry about that, right? My friend Jeremy Beck is a great quote. He's repeated often. But he says, it appears that the future of the church is a church that is constantly trying to figure out the future. The future of the church is a church that's trying to constantly figure out the future. All we're doing is worrying, in other words. What's coming down the pike? And for us as individuals, and for our individual families, that could be us too. Our future, could, the future of our family could be our family trying to figure out the future. The future of me could be me trying to figure out the future and end up in Blaise Pascal's world where he says, like, you're either stuck in the past, you're stuck in the future, and there is no present for you. And that's no way to live. It's no way to live. True story. I knew a man who was so afraid of thunderstorms that he bought a house near the hospital so that every time he heard thunder, he could go sit in the emergency room and wait out the storm. And I asked, I asked him one day, why do you do this? And I suggested, do you feel like the structure of the hospital is safer than the structure of your house, and so it's like a storm shelter for you? And he said, no, I go to the emergency room because I'm afraid I'm going to have a heart attack. And you know what? Year, decades later, he finally did have a heart attack. But it wasn't in the storm. It wasn't in a thunderstorm. All those countless hours, all those wasted moments, so afraid of what could be coming down the pike that you're sitting in an emergency room. And, and you know, some, some people spend their lives like that. It's like not a real emergency room. But we've got our own little hospital wards in our house that we can't come out of because we're just afraid of what could be coming. I, got her, I heard a, a program of... Did I write it in my notes? I can't think of the name of the show. It was Radio Lab. That's what it was on NPR. Used to be a really good show. I'm not sure if it is now. But a while back, the host was talking about the subject of quicksand. And I bring this up. It stuck with me for some reason. So if you've heard me say it before, my apologies. It's still it's a really interesting anecdote. So the radio host is talking to a friend who is an elementary school teacher. And somehow the subject of quicksand comes up. And he talks about how he's still, from his childhood, deathly afraid of quicksand. And he gets into the fact that, you know, there are these apps that you can pull up on your phone now where you can search out all the real quicksand in the world and all this stuff, but hardly anybody uses it. It's a tiny niche. An elementary school teacher says, you know, kids aren't afraid of quicksand anymore. Nobody's afraid of quicksand. Nobody even talks about quicksand. And he says, that can't be. We were all scared of quicksand growing up. And so he goes, he asks her, can I come to your class, interview your students, and ask them what they're afraid of? And she says, of course. And so he goes, and he starts interviewing these children, little children, elementary school age children, one by one. 
asking them, are you afraid of quicksand? And the answer was, no, 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 no. Not a second thought. Well, what are you afraid of? And they gave answers like, zombie apocalypse. Alien invasions. Global climate catastrophe. The burning out of the sun. You know, it's once... <laughs> I'm mindful that this is being recorded, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. <laughs> we are a culture that is at one and the same time afraid that the earth is going to heat up so much that it's going to melt us all to death, but is scared that the sun is going to freeze out and we're all going to freeze to death, right? That's, I mean, the, the paralyzing fears that are put out before us. Roy Baumeister, the social psychologist, I've read a lot of his work and I enjoy his writing. I think he's a very wise man. He wrote just a couple of years ago, if it's a slow news day, there are always future doomsdays to fear. A virus wiping out humanity, a takeover of the world by robots, a global environmental collapse. Apocalyptic predictions have become so common that when a national sample of preteen children in America were asked what the planet would be like when they grew up, again, preteen kids, what's the planet going to be like? What's America going to be like when you grow up? You ask somebody that 100 years ago, 50 years ago, you can imagine what the answer would be. You ask them now, here was the answer. One in three of the children feared the earth would no longer exist. And Baumeister says the precise terms for the adults who are scaring these children, what they call it scientifically, the technical term, is availability entrepreneurs. Availability entrepreneurs. They're the journalists, activists, Academics and politicians, is quoting Baumeister, who capitalize on the human tendency to gauge a danger by how many examples are readily available in the mind. So, if you're growing up and you're a certain age, you had, I think at one point in the 50s, 3% of all movies had quicksand in it. And so, if you watch a lot of movies, there's a lot of examples of quicksand. And so, quicksand becomes this thing that's available, it's out there, it's to be feared. If you're growing up now, it's robots and zombie apocalypses. That's available to our conscience. But another way to define this idea of availability is the more we make ourselves available to bad news, the more bad news becomes available to us. And the, on, the availability entrepreneurs will take every opportunity they have to make sure that they show it to us. It's, and so to deal with this, this paralyzing fear of the future that's being you know, placarded all around us, Baumeister proposes what he calls the Pollyanna Principle to combat fear of the future. What's the Pollyanna Principle? Well, try to see things positively. Always hope for the happy ending. You know, if something bad happens, try to spin it in a good way. It's like, yeah, I got a flat tire, but maybe that flat happened so I wouldn't get in a catastrophic wreck going down the road. You know, put a positive spin on things, Pollyanna. But if Paul is telling Timothy to drink a little wine to ease his nerves and his stomach, we might need a little more than pie in the sky. So how can we deal with fear of the future? Well, here's point two, the power for the future. Back to our text, 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. Paul says, For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So notice the first thing Paul says in verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear. If you have a spirit of fear, in other words, it does not come from God. It did not come from God. It is not coming from God. But the word fear there can be a little misleading. We're all afraid from time to time. The Greek word isn't the normal word for fear, which is phobos, from which we get phobia. It's delia, which really means cowardice. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and love and self-control. So Paul is not saying that Timothy will never be afraid or should never be afraid. He's saying that Timothy must never be a coward. God has not given us the spirit of cowardice. You don't hear cowardice spoke of as much uh, today as it was in times past. In Revelation 21, verse 8 and following, God lists a number of character traits that people have who will find themselves separated from God and in the eternal lake of fire. And these are some of the phrases he uses for those who will not make it to heaven. The faithless, those who commit abominations, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. You know what the first one on the list is? You see it if you looked at it. Cowardly. He says the cowardly will not inherit the kingdom. So what's the difference between cowardice and fear? Fear is an occasional thing. Fear is something we cannot avoid. You cannot avoid being startled. You cannot avoid being afraid if something catastrophic is looming and we know that it's coming. When the sirens are sounding, it makes sense to be afraid. But cowardice is not occasional fear. It's a way of life. It's a way of life in which you are perpetually walking on eggshells. I've gone through periods of my life where I've experienced that. I used to wonder what that meant, walking on eggshells, and then I actually experienced it and I realized, oh, it's where you're always worried about who's sitting behind you at the restaurant. You're always worried about what might be coming around the corner. You're always worried about what's going to be in the room when you walk in. Cowardice is a life characterized by constantly looking for things to be afraid of and things to be concerned about. It's making your life constantly available to the entrepreneur that is fear. God hasn't given us a spirit of cowardice. I want to give you a principle. I think I first heard Jordan Peterson say this, but regardless, it's something that stuck with me for a long, long time. And he said, you know, the opposite of cowardice is not fearlessness. The opposite of cowardice is bravery. And bravery is not the absence of fear. Bravery is the willingness to act even when you're afraid. Bravery is saying, I have reasons to be afraid, but I will not let that fear paralyze me. Instead, I will act in the face of it. And that's what Paul wants from Timothy. And it's what the Spirit wants from us. Here's how you get that. Verse 7. God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power 
and love and self-control. See, those are the elements of bravery. Power, love, and self-control. You can be afraid, but if you have the power of God at work in your life, you can be brave. You can be afraid, but if you have love, I mean, love, that's, Chesterton has a quote where he said, no one ever nobly fought a war for hatred of what was in front of him. We, we fight wars because of the love of what's behind us. We fight for our country because we love our country. Right? We fight for a spouse because we love our spouse. Love inspires bravery. And the same thing goes with self-control. Self-control in relation to fear is the ability to self-moderate. It's the ability to stop and say, you are afraid right now. This is not a spirit that comes from God. You need to act in the face of your fears and be brave. And there's no better example of how this works in the Scripture than the life of Christ himself. Jesus Christ, the only perfect man who ever lived, was obviously, therefore, the only perfectly brave man who ever lived. And I want to show you a couple of examples. First, we uh, enjoyed the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. In the narrative of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 22, 13 and following, it says this, And the disciples went and found it, just as he had told them, the room that is, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until, future, the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, I listened to a sermon on that passage recently, and what struck me listening to that sermon was that Jesus was, was observing, was eating the Passover meal with his disciples. What was the Passover meal? It was something that was meant to commemorate the past, what God had done in Egypt in sparing all the firstborn sons of Israel. And Jesus says, while celebrating this meal, observing and commemorating the past, that he's not going to eat this meal again, what becomes the Lord's Supper, until everything it symbolizes is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, manifested in the future, at his second coming. God's past deliverance of Israel is going to give way to a cosmic deliverance for all the people of God that ultimately leads them to the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm so committed to my people and my purpose for my people that I'm going on a hunger strike until I come back to meet with them again and eat the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think about the bravery of Jesus because like, Jesus has his death on his mind as he's about to have this meal. This meal is going to be a picture of his death. And here he is reclining at his table with his disciples, loving them to the very end, encouraging them fanning their flame of the gift of God that's in them for the future, saying, 
You're going to go through hard times. I'm going to die. You're going to be scattered, but don't worry. I'm not eating again until I can come back and eat with you. That's how committed he is to them. And so every time we eat and drink the supper, Jesus is reminding us of that commitment, that we get to eat and drink while he's on a hunger strike, and that one day we will eat and drink with him again. And in the meantime, we're covered on all ends, past, present, and future. The cross behind us, the Lord's table in front of us, and the marriage supper of the Lamb out far in front of us in the future. The meal is meant to remind us that Christ died for us, that he rose for us, and that because he rose, we're going to rise again. And so it teaches us not to fear the future, but to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. One other example in the life of Christ, of him facing down the fear of the future, the most obvious one is Gethsemane. And I preached a sermon on this uh, a while back, so y'all have got to hear a lot of what I think about this. But here we get a picture of our Savior, where he's falling down on his face on the ground, sweating great drops of blood, saying, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup. He knows what's coming. And there's a sense in which he's fearful. And Haddon Robinson, in a sermon on the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Not in Pilate's hall, nor on his way to the cross. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Hebrews 5.7 Had I been there and witnessed that struggle, I would have worried about the future. I'd have been saying, if he's so broken up now when all he's doing is praying, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage and his three friends fell apart and fell away. What's the difference between Jesus and the disciples in Gethsemane? They're sleeping. He's praying. They're not anxious in a sense. like They're just trying to forget what's happening, turn a blind eye to it, close their eyes. And he's going to the Father looking for strength, saying, Lord, strengthen me to drink this cup that you've prepared for. For me. He took his fears to God, and that's how he got courage to move forward. And that's essentially what we're to do. Now, we talked earlier about availability entrepreneurs. You know, this world wants us to be constantly available to bad news and fear-mongering and the like. Part of what the gospel is asking us to do is to make ourselves more available to Christ and what he's done for us than to the world and what it's doing. How available are you to Christ and his good news? There's a passage in Hebrews where uh, the author of Hebrews tells us that if we're not going to drift away from Christ, we need to pay much closer attention to the things we've heard. I've always read, it's, you know, it's a graphic phrase, pay much closer attention, because you look at the Greek, it literally means be obsessed with the things you've heard. Be obsessed with with Christ and the gospel and what he's done for you and how you've heard it preached over and over again all your life. Be obsessed with it. Be more available to it than you are to all this doom and gloom that the world's throwing at you. These zombie apocalypse and climate meltdowns and the like. G.K. Chesterton said, The pessimist is commonly spoken of as the true rebel. He is not. Firstly, because it requires some cheerfulness to continue to revolt. 
And secondly, because pessimism appeals to the weaker side of everybody. And the pessimist, therefore, drives as roaring a trade as the tax collector. The person who is really a rebel, in the best sense of the word, is the optimist, who generally lives and dies in a desperate effort to persuade all other people how good they are. It's been proved a hundred times over that if you really wish to enrage people and make them angry, even unto death, the right way to do it is to tell them that they are all the sons of God. And what he's saying, he believed in original sin. Chesterton did. He wrote essays on it. He's not saying we're not sinners. He's not denying our depravity. What he is saying is that if you want to be different, be that defiant optimist who dares to say something good could happen. Be that defiant optimist who dares to look at somebody and say, God can do something with your life. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if his, with His love He befriend thee. That, that's our message to the world, not just doomsday, but hope. He means tell people that they're capable of more than what they're doing, that they have a future, that God's there in the future waiting for them. He's already there. He's the I Am. I'll close with... Uh, on Wednesday nights, I've been talking a lot about Steve Cuss's teachings. Cuss's website is called Cuss Words, by the way. It's a brilliant little title. Mine would be Crosswords, I suppose, but regardless. <laughs> but Steve Cuss, when he started his ministry, he was a hospital chaplain uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Came here from Australia. First job in the ministry is a hospital chaplain. I could not even fathom it. And so when he started the job, like he says, I forget how many, he saw as many as six or seven people die in one night at times. And he was given, it back in this day was the day when they had beepers. And he was given three beepers on his first night. And one was for his units, the other for the emergency room, and the last one was for what they called the code team. If the code team beeper went off, that means a patient's heart had just stopped and he needed to get there as quickly as possible. And he said, you know, when a patient's heart stops racing, yours starts racing. That's what his early experience there was like. So the first time the beeper went off, he ran to his supervisor and asked him, what do I do? What do I do now? And his supervisor said, it will be interesting to find out, won't it? And Cuss said, he just, he looked at him. You're kidding. What do I do now? And he got no answer. And so Cuss said to his supervisor, what if I make a mistake? And his supervisor said, son, you're going to make hundreds of mistakes before this year is over. Your job is to go. And your job is to be there. And so Cuss said he did. And he had, he writes of all of his, you know, various experiences that he had with walking into rooms with people screaming and wailing and falling on the floor, hysterical. And him as a young, early 20s guy asking, what am I supposed to do? And he said every time that that code team pager went off, he got in the habit that he would always pray something like, Lord, please don't let it be my family. But he realized that that was just feeding his fear more and more. And he came to learn... He said, 
that as a minister, and it's true for all of us as Christians, he learned that no matter what was on the other side of that hospital door, Jesus was beating him there. Jesus was already there. Jesus was in that room. Because Christ is present, has promised, Lo, I'm with you always. I'm present even to the end of the age. No matter what door you're about to walk through, Christ is already there. You know, Robert Murray McShane famously said, If I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a thousand armies. Nevertheless, he is praying for me, whether I hear it or not. So why should I fear a thousand armies? He is the I am. He is with us. When we get to the future, he is already there. And so what's left for us is to remember that God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and of love and of self-control. And if you remember that, uh, comes to mind. John Piper told a story that one of his congregants was driving to the church on New Year's Eve, or was about to drive to the church to deliver a rather large check to the church as his end-of-year gift. And when he walked out of his driveway to get in his car, he realized his car wasn't there. It had been stolen. What do you do in that moment? He asked himself, Do I still give the check? I need, I need that money to buy a car now. He still gave the check. He still gave the check because God's not given us a spirit of cowardice. Let's pray. Father, yea, though we walk through death's dark veil, yet will we fear not ill, for thou art with us, and your rod and staff me comfort still. The great hope we have to combat our fears and our cowardice is that you are with us, and your rod and your staff, they comfort us. But sometimes our problems become more real to us than your presence. Would you use this scripture and this message tonight to remind us that whatever doors you may call us to walk through, you are already on the other side of them, and therefore we do not have to fear. And even when we are afraid, that we can be brave, because Christ was brave for us. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and close by singing hymn number 87, The Lord's My Shepherd, I'll Not Want.
The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. Grace and peace be with you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.